Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and thank you for listening to Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. My name is Toby Mundy, and I'm the director of the Bailey Gifford Prize. In 2001, Patrick Radden Keefe won the prize for his book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, which told the remarkable story of the family who made billions from the opioid epidemic in the United States. Empire of Pain has now been shortlisted for the Winner of Winners Award to celebrate our 25th anniversary. For those of you who haven't been listening in recently, the award will be given to one of the previous winners of the Bader Gifford Prize. Patrick today has very kindly agreed to join us to talk a little bit about his book and its impact and how it fits into some of the other extraordinary works that he's produced. Oh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Oh, I'm so delighted to be with you. Thank you. Um, so if you, this is an epic book and an epic undertaking. It was published in 2021, but when did you begin to write it? It started probably in, t- in about 2016 was when I started really looking into this in a serious way. And initially there was a piece that ran in the New Yorker in late 2017. Um, and then there was a bit of a gap because the piece came out and I thought there might be a book there, but for a variety of reasons, I thought it would not be possible to write the kind of book I would want to. Um, and then a few things changed. And um, about a year later was when I, I really I really kind of engaged with the book. You said something changed that made this, suddenly made this book possible after you wrote the original New Yorker article. What, what, what was that then? There were some disclosures. Yeah, so there were a couple of things that changed. I mean, one was that um, there was a lawsuit initiated by the Attorney General in Massachusetts, which obtained a lot of the internal emails of the Sacklers. And that both gave me a sense of how they sounded, how they spoke behind closed doors, how they talked about these issues, but also gave a sense of um, a kind of a sense of moral urgency, I felt, in this in that I was appalled by the things that I read. I was, when I finally saw the way the family talked about these issues and what their company had done, it seemed to me that a wider public should be able to read those emails because they felt very revealing. And and then the other thing that happened was because I had published the article, it's it's a very useful way of putting the world on notice that you're working on something. And so all of these people started coming out of the woodwork to, in some cases, contacting me out of the blue and saying, I knew the Sacklers or I know them. I worked for them. Um, I lived with one of the Sacklers. You know, it was that kind of person who found me. And that made me feel as though there'd be a way to tell the story that would be as, as vivid and intimate as I wanted it to be, even in the event that I couldn't actually speak to any of the members of the family. Yeah. Oh, it, yes, absolutely. So if you, if you had a time machine and could go back to 2018 or 19 when you were kind of really sitting in front of your keyboard thinking about this as a much longer book-length work, what advice would you give yourself? What would you, knowing now what you know? Oh, I mean, I think that, I think that some of it would be about having a kind of um, strategic patience. <laughs> <laughs> that the that the the whole process of reporting a big project like this is there are so many problems that seem so unyielding 
And it's easy to lose hope at times, but I do think that sometimes you just need to to wait and, and things will shake loose and, and sometimes your persistence can be rewarded. And, I, and I, I've always found this in my work that if you just hang around and you talk to more and more and more people, it starts to pay dividends because word gets out that you're on the subject and people who, when you first approached them, might assume that you'll just kind of fade away when you come back six or eight or nine months later. And in the interim, they've been hearing from all these other people that you've been talking to the other people as well. You sort of, you sort of wear them down, I think, yeah. over time. So I, I imagine as, 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 a, as a non-writer, right, I kind of imagine this is like a 500,000 piece jigsaw that you're trying to put together. Um, is, is, that, is that a fair analogy? Is that what it seemed like to you at the time? It is, yeah, and and it's funny. I mean, one of the big things that I I wrestle with as a writer, but also as a reader, is um, I think the process of gathering all those jigsaw pieces. It has its own difficulties. It has its own rewards, but it's it's a, it's a, it's its own discrete kind of activity. And as a reader, I get very frustrated when I feel as though there's a writer who's done impeccable research and then not given a lot of thought to how they will put those pieces together. You know, it's as if they compile all the pieces and then they just sort of shove them across the table at me. Um, so the, the challenge, the real, the, the real challenge, I think, is not just doing the deep research, but then giving some thought to how am I going to present this in a way that will hopefully be enjoyable and, and seductive and engaging for the casual reader who may have no no interest in this particular subject when they come into the book um and that's the real trick is the, is the kind of the architecture of the story and frankly it's 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 the painful <laughs> the painful experience of um you've got these hard one i mean to 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 really belabor your metaphor these these hard one jigsaw puzzle pieces that in some cases, took you weeks and weeks to obtain. And there's a discipline required to occasionally say, you know what, this doesn't fit in the book. <laughs> this will slow it down. It's actually superfluous. It seemed so important to me when I was out looking for it. But now that I see the, the picture that's emerging, there's not a place for this one. Hmm. And I imagine in my uh, in my mind's eye that your study is like a kind of incident room in a TV cop show. Do you, is that fair? You surround by like post-it stickers and photographs and strings connecting things to each other. Yeah, I think there's a giant map of America with sacks things everywhere on it. Believe me, it's just piles and piles of paper and books. It's funny because not not two hours ago, my wife. Um, came into my study and, and made a remark uh, along the lines that it looked like a bomb had gone off in here. And I said, I said, you are an invited guest in this room and you must, uh, you must not say such cruel things. <laughs> I'm interested in your journey to becoming a writer. I mean, um, am I right to think that you, I mean, you studied in England, didn't you, as a postgraduate and you, and you started out in international relations and then you studied law. Is that is that right? Yes. Yeah, which is a little bit. And then you were a civil servant for a while. I was for a year. Yeah, yeah. I had. Yeah, it's it's been a sort of roundabout route. I mean, it's a it's a bit deceptive in the sense that I, I always had a great deal of clarity about what I wanted to do with my life. I knew 
uh, from the time I was a high school student that I wanted to to write, to be a writer, and actually to write for The New Yorker. That was my real dream. Wow. Um, it just took a long, long time for me to operationalize that. I didn't know. It's a tricky career, right? It's not, there, it's not a situation where you can kind of get in on the ground floor with an apprenticeship or something. And so I went to grad school. I was at Cambridge University and then the London School of Economics, two very happy years in England. Um, and I was, I, and during that time, I was sending off pitches to the New Yorker and other magazines. And then, but none of them were accepted. I couldn't find any, I couldn't persuade anybody that in fact I should be a writer, a gainfully employed writer. And um, so then I moved back to the States and I went to law school because I think I'm, um, I liked being in school. I sort of liked, I, to the degree that I needed a cover story, that I needed some other thing, a day job, something I was doing until I could make this dream uh, hopefully come true. Ooh. I thought school wasn't a bad idea. Um, and so I, I went back and went to Yale Law School. And it was while I was there that I actually wrote my first book. And it grew out of some graduate work I'd done in the UK, a book called Chatter, which is about eavesdropping by government agencies. Because um, I'd always been very interested in in secrecy and government secrecy. And that actually led to the civil servant thing, which is that I, I, I did end up writing for the New Yorker and and I was I was a freelance journalist for years and years, which is um, a thrilling but sometimes slightly terrifying in a can you pay the rent sort of way mm. uh, way to make a living. And I, at a certain point I had the opportunity to do a fellowship in the at the Pentagon of all places in the office of the Secretary of Defense. So this is two thousand and ten. I went in for a year. And the, what I was told was, listen, if you come in, we'll give you a top secret clearance. You can come in and um, and after a year, you lose the clearance and you leave the government and you can't write about any of the classified stuff. But, you know, all the sources that you've developed over that year, you know, may, may or may not uh, be fruitful sources in your journalism career moving forward. And you did, have... did that. Please. Did, did that did that year in, in in the civil service? I'm sure I realized was ten or fifteen years ago. Did that give you kind of confidence in American federal institutions? I mean, did you? Oh God, did you, no. Did you leave the government and think, okay, we're we're in good hands here? No, the the opposite. And and this is the sense in which it was it was very helpful for me to do it because I think that from the outside, when you're writing articles, sometimes quite antagonistic articles about what the government is doing, there is a tendency. And this would certainly be true even of that first book I wrote, Chatter, which is not a very good book. I wrote it in my 20s, but it was about the National Security Agency and actually GCHQ in, uh, in the UK and these all-powerful Orwellian government agencies. And it was sobering for me to get into the Pentagon and cleared to be in some of those rooms and to realize that it looks much more like, um, you know... Yes, minister in the loop, or I mean, the, the kind of or Veep, the sort of the the Iannucci, the, the the Armando Iannucci version of government is satirical, but actually, I think much closer to the truth that there's there are egos and pettiness and turf wars, and um, no, it was it was a very sobering experience for me to to get inside and see um, 
the kind of inner mechanics of the bureaucracy uh, and and actually how dysfunctional it was. And how, how do you think the United States does, I mean, having done this extraordinary, extraordinary book on Purdue Pharma, I mean, how, how, do, how successful do you think the United States is, is these days at holding big corporations to account? Completely unsuccessful. I mean, I, to me, this would be one of the themes of the book is I, I, I thought of Empire of Pain as a, I hope it functions as a sort of sweeping history of one American dynasty, three generations of this one family in the foreground. But in the background, we have the, the, the backdrop for this story is the total absence of, of checks and accountability when it comes to big corporate interests, the moneyed elite, um, that you have a whole range of public institutions that are subverted and undermined by the billions of dollars that were generated by this company. And, and, and so in this case, it's about the pharmaceutical industry and the failures of the Food and Drug Administration and the Department of Justice and various other big institutions. But the truth is, I think you could look at almost any big industry, be it the gun lobby uh, or um, the petroleum industry, or you name it, and find a, a similar level of um, of dysfunction when it comes to regulation or, or the absence thereof. And there are amazing instances of regulatory capture in your, in your book. I mean, mind-boggling <laughs> examples. I mean, can you can you give us a couple of those? Can you recall them? Yeah, of course. I mean, there were. Um, Part of what was so interesting for me about this story and something I really didn't anticipate when I started writing it was the degree to which history repeats itself. So there are these fact patterns that you find in the 1990s and the early aughts in the story of Purdue Pharma and OxyContin, which actually have these precursors in the 1950s when Arthur Sackler, the, the, um, the oldest of the three original Sackler brothers, uh, is getting started in pharmaceutical marketing and advertising. So there's a story there I tell about um, a particular official at the FDA who was in charge of antibiotics and who was corrupted, basically, by one of Arthur Sackler's clients, which was Pfizer, I mean, a, a company now very well known. Mm. Um, but that at the time, there was a there was a particular speech that he had given and uh, there were reprints of the speech, and he would be compensated for each reprint of the speech. And Pfizer purchased 250,000 reprints of the speech. Wow. And uh, it looked as though they, you know, the, their sort of cover story was, oh, we're just buying these reprints because we want to distribute them to our customers or what have you. But in truth, they, I, I actually quoted somebody in the book saying that they just piled up in a storeroom someplace. This was a way to bribe, to launder a bribe to a government official. And then you go, you know, you, you hop forward four decades. Mm. And there's a guy I write about named Curtis Wright, who was the main FDA official in charge of approving OxyContin for sale and approving the marketing claims that could be made about the drug. And he signed off on everything in record time and then about a year later went to work for Purdue Pharma, the very company whose product he'd signed off on at three times 
his government salary. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It really is. That's quite shocking. And I, and I, and you know, and I asked it, the interesting thing there is I've been talking about this book since it came out. I haven't found anybody who would justify that arrangement. It's not illegal. It's actually legal what happened um, for him to leave and then go work at a, at a company he'd been regulating. But even Curtis, when I reached Curtis Wright himself on the phone, we had a, <laughs> we had a phone call that lasted about 22 seconds. <laughs> long enough, long enough for him to tell me that his his lawyer had advised him that it would be better not to speak with me. <laughs> and um, I just want to go back to those early years of you you making your way as a writer. What kind of things were you reading as you were growing up? Where um, what what who can you remember the books that made a big impact on you as a younger a young man? Yeah, well, there were different phases. I mean, as a child, I was really addicted to mysteries. I was I was hugely into uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers, um, and so that kind of genre fiction and the the sort of the pleasures of a well told tale with twists and revelations. Um, that was what I. I really grew up on. And then as I got a bit older, I got very into the kind of uh, literary nonfiction that was specifically that was published in The New Yorker. Um, a lot of the mid-century writers, uh, people like Truman Capote and Joseph Mitchell. I mean, then as I as I got older still, I, I um, discovered other people who would become, eventually become colleagues of mine, but writers like Janet Malcolm um, mm. and Catherine Boo, who's now come back to the New Yorker as a as an editor, but a really tremendous mm. writer. Um, and, you know, F Philip Gurevich's book uh, about Rwanda came out mm. when I was, mm. I was a college student. And that was that was a book that really sort of opened my eyes to the way a certain kind of story could be told. Um, but truthfully, it's it's an it's an ongoing process. I mean, I'm still um, I'm still often dazzled by the things I read, and and I'm always wondering what I can what I can borrow or steal in terms of literary techniques. You know how different ways of telling a story. Can you remember reading? When can you? Where were you when you were reading Cold Blood? Oh, I was in high I was in high school. Uh, I was in high school when I read in Cold Blood. Um, and and the um yeah i sort of went on a jag of 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 a certain kind of um again this the kind of literary reportage mm. um and the the interesting thing now of course and it's awkward to talk about is that i now have much more complicated feelings about that specific book so when i when i read it in a way i fell for i fell for Capote's own spin on it, right? Which is that it, he was inventing a new genre, that it was the nonfiction novel. And I think many people still, if you look at a book like Empire of Pain, there's an argument that you can make that 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 I'm I'm working in a in a field that can trace its origins back to that book. But the challenging thing when you look at In Cold Blood today is that a lot of it was made up. Well, you are, as usual, you're ahead of me. Absolutely. I was going to ask you, it was more novel than nonfiction, we know that. Yes. I mean, he broke all the rules. And so it's a, it's a tricky book to talk about today. Um, and in a way, I, I end up 
uncomfortable with the notion that the genre started there because if that's the case then we were we were sort of born in sin and and for me that the all of the the cardinal rules involve the idea that you, you can't do the things he did you can't invent characters you can't um you know you, you can't invent scenes you can't invent dialogue there's nothing in empire of pain that is not backstopped in reporting and so in a strange way as much as there there are is a kind of literary panache with which he approached the storytelling. I think of what I do as, as in some ways, fundamentally different because there are, um, there are places I can't go. You know, I, I can't get out ahead of my own reporting. Mm. Fundamentally different and way, way harder. I mean, it's great if you can just make up that scene that makes the story hang together. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it, and it's funny, too, because I think that there are moments where and I, I very often have these moments. I mean, there's a there's a there's a story that became very central to Empire of Pain, where I was trying to understand why the Sackler family felt this urge over seven decades to put their name up on different buildings. They would give all this money away, but always with the stipulation that their name go on the wall. And I discovered this incredible interview that Arthur Sackler had done, which had never been, it wasn't on the internet, it had never really um, found any wider traction. But in the early 1980s, he'd given money to Tufts University to build a building with his name on it. And I, I sort of intuited that there might have been some coverage at the time in the student newspaper. And so I tried to track down the student newspaper which was not on the internet, and I had to get in touch with the librarian at Tufts who pulled from the archive the original microfilm and then digitized it. And sure enough, there was this priceless interview that Arthur Sackler had given in which he tells this story about his father losing everything during the Great Depression, but saying to his sons, listen, I, you know, I haven't given you nothing. I've given you a good name. And if, if you... If you lose a fortune, you can always make another fortune. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. And that's that ends up being this kind of leitmotif in the book. But what's funny is, if it were fiction, that would be a bit on the nose. <laughs> you know, like as a novelist, I think I would I would refrain from something that's so precisely and explicitly on on theme in a story about a family that um, has invested in in the kind of branding of its own name. So that to me is the amazing thing about nonfiction is that you often stumble across these little details in real life in the course of your reporting that you'd almost be embarrassed as a novelist to introduce. I remember a distinguished novelist once saying to me, talking about contemporary fiction he said you know that the problem of being a contemporary novelist is that you're now in competition with reality itself and it's, <laughs> it's a fully merchandised and marketed branch of the entertainment industry uh, and absolutely. and here's the kicker he said it keeps coming up with these plot lines that i wouldn't dare to make up and i thought that was a brilliant line yeah well, i mean how do you right how do you how do you satirize our present moment my god <laughs> And so when you look at when you look over the books that, that you you've written how have you changed or i mean it's, in a sense it's a slightly unfair question because it's a question for one of your readers but how have you how have you developed as a writer do you think i mean how have you changed the way you do your job your work you know it's interesting i um earlier this year my second book 
the Snakehead was published in the UK for the first time. And I, I, I have a copy of it by my elbow. Right? Ah, fantastic. So I, I should say, I mean, that's um, that's the sort of thing that I think probably wouldn't have happened had Empire of Pain not won the Bailey Gifford. But but because of the audience that Empire of Pain found, and to some extent my my previous book, uh, Say Nothing, um, there was interest in this earlier book that I published in 2009. And I went back and I reread it for the first time since it had come out. And that first book I mentioned, Chatter, that that's a book I would write very differently or not write at all today. I was really kind of fumbling around in the dark trying to figure out the kind of writer I wanted to be. But with The Snakehead, which was 2009, I think I sort of found my rhythm. I, I, I figured out the kind of book that I wanted to write and enjoyed writing. And I think that it actually reads in some ways... It's a, it's a similar reading experience, I think, to Say Nothing in Empire of Pain. It's it's slightly different. I mean, the chapters in the later books are shorter. I think the structure is a bit more complicated in the later books. But um, so I don't know that I've I've evolved in any uh, really dramatic ways, but I've I've gotten um, I've gotten a lot more confident, uh, I think, in um, in what I'm doing on the page. And I should say some of that is a real credit to my editors. I have the great luxury of, I've been working with the same magazine editor and, and book editor for the last, I don't know, last 15 or so year, 15 or 17 years. And um, those relationships are hugely important because I think that if you have a kind of implicit trust with your editor, what it means for me is that I can, I'm always pushing the boundaries of what may or may not work. And that can mean a joke. It can mean a literary flourish. It can mean a sort of a very specific choice. I mean, there's a chapter in Empire of Pain that is a totally freestanding chapter about an explosion at a chemical plant. And mm -hmm. until the end of the chapter, you don't, there are none of the Sacklers. It's none of the characters you've met before. It's a strange decision, but that's the sort of thing where when I did it, I wasn't sure it would work. I thought if this works, it'll be great. It may not work, but I had the confidence in my relationship with my editor that I knew he would tell me immediately if it didn't work or if it almost worked, but I needed to tweak it. Um, and so in a strange way, I think some of the, some of the, my, my confidence in trying things comes from the safety net that you have just in a, in a very close relationship with a really smart editor who knows you and knows your writing really well and will will intervene to save you um, if you need it. <laughs> I think that chapter is absolutely brilliant. I thought you went the, you went full Tolstoy in that chapter. I, thought <laughs> Marvel. I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Um, will, and uh, just, I mean, we sh we're running out of time, but I mean, your your other extraordinary, your, your, your book prior to Empire of Pain is Say Nothing, which is on the face of it, a profoundly different work about the troubles in Northern Ireland and the um, abduction in the seventies and murder of uh, Jean McConville. Um, what in your mind? What is there? A, what's the relationship between that book and Empire of Pain? When you think in, I mean, it's all the product of one, one, one mind, yours, and one series of unconscious preoccupations. But can you feel connections between them? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely. I don't. I should say I. I'm not very strategic when I pick these things. I sort of. I go where I am pulled, um, and it's usually the people, it's usually the characters that draw me in. Um, 
so yes, I think mm-hmm. on 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 at a glance they can seem very very different. But I think the the reporting and the storytelling um, are very similar. And thematically, one of the things that I'm most interested in is the stories that people tell themselves about the decisions that they make. And it's interesting because Say Nothing to me is is very much a story of moral ambiguity. Um, you know, it's about these people in the IRA who joined the IRA, I think, for quite idealistic reasons, and then did awful, awful, atrocious things. And it's about how they looked back on those things over time, you know, through the years. And then Empire of Pain is quite different. It's really a it's it's really a book with a lot of moral clarity. It's about a family behaving in a pretty atrocious manner uh, that would be hard to redeem um, in any sense at all. But the the commonality for me is what I'm most interested in is any of us who transgress in large or really small ways, I think, are kind of in the process of narrative construction where we're thinking, well, who am I? What, what's the story that I'm a character in? How do I justify the choices I've made? And sometimes those choices are, are terrible and have awful consequences. But I'm very keenly interested in how people tell those stories. So these people who are in the IRA, uh, after the troubles, when they're in middle age and they have children of their own and their preoccupations are different and they look back at the things they did in their youth, how do they make sense of those things? How do they justify them? And some of them aren't able to mm-hmm. and they end up very traumatized and it it, it, it essentially kills some of them. Um, others are. I mean, I wrote about Jerry Adams and I, I think Jerry Adams sleeps very well at night. Um, and then you have the Sacklers and, and there's a kind of moral blindness that they have to the consequences of their own actions that just psychologically is is very interesting to me. Yes, and, and none of these people ever say, I'm an evil person and I'm doing terrible things. They all, And everybody thinks they're a good person, don't they? And that's part of the fascination of this, I guess. That To me, in some ways, that's a... <laughs> That is a, an irony on which I've I've staked my my writing career. I mean, I, I time and again, what is interesting to me is the is the is the slippage between the story as an objective observer sees it and the story as perceived by um, by the protagonists and antagonists uh, who are who are living it out. You know, for whom it is it is their life. Um, and the and the way in which they're able to often delude themselves into thinking that they're not the villain. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fascinating, fascinating. Um, that is unfortunately all we have time for. But thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. Oh, thank you, um, and thank you for making the time to do so uh, so soon before the uh, actual awards evening. Um, We'd like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation, as always, for its generous support of this podcast. And to find out more about the Bailey Gifford Prize, you can visit the website or follow us on Twitter at BG Prize. If this episode has piqued your interest in the history of the prize, you can find a 35-minute documentary on our website. The Winner of Winners Award will be announced on the 27th of April at an event held at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. Uh, In the next episode, we'll be joined by the winner, whoever they may be. So do tune in. Many thanks again for joining us. Bye-bye.
Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.